We'll be in Psalms chapter number 30, 133. We'll try to be fast. I hear there's a tennis match on TV tonight. <laughs> uh, it's all the same thing. Brother Ron Garris used to head up uh, Rock of Ages Predators Ministries. He, he stayed with us uh, a time or two, or ate with us a few times and, uh, at meals. And, and when he'd preach, he'd talk about things like uh, football, and somebody asked him, you're going to watch the football game? He said, no, I haven't got time to watch the dummies and the stupids. <laughs> and he didn't, I think he didn't like football, evidently. <laughs> I think several of you do. And so uh, I like uh, to watch the Razorbacks, especially when they win. And so now we've already won one game in the last five years, so we'll see how it goes. Psalm 133, verse number one. Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like, a, like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Did I give you the right scripture? One, Psalm 133? Is that okay? I heard some pages turning. Maybe I said it wrong. Sometimes when I hear pages turning, I'm like, uh-oh, I gave the wrong reference. Huh? Okay. So if you'll get, we're coming back to it in just a minute. So uh, we're going to look at it in a little more depth. And so... If you're at 133, Psalm 133, we'll be in the right place. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd bless us tonight as we look into your wonderful and precious word. We know that it has life-giving principles. And Lord, it has good news and encouragement. It has correction for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make all of those things work in our life as we look at the scriptures tonight, as is needed in each of our lives. Lord, we're all different. We all have different needs and Lord, we're at different places in our lives. I pray that you'd speak to us in some way that would help each of us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> we've, we've kept preachers in our home over the years. And uh, I was glad when we, when we got the double wide, uh, we've, got, we've got three extra bedrooms. They're not very big, but they'll keep they'll, enough room for Preachers stay in. Preachers don't need a lot of room. You know, they just need to play, lay down, sleep, and get up and read their Bible, and that's it. So we kept preachers and missionaries and evangelists in our home over the years, different ones. And uh, we did it at first because our church was small, and we didn't have much uh, finances to, uh, to rent a lot of hotel rooms. And so we did it for e economy. And a few times we had a preacher in that would just, for one reason or other, uh, preferred to have privacy in a hotel room and a place where he could study without being concerned about getting interrupted or maybe he could make phone calls and stuff. And so he preferred to stay in a, in a hotel. And, and so we would, we would do that. We did it when necessary. And when Ed Dunlop, our evangelist that's coming for the Family Crusade this fall in, in October, uh, when Ed Dunlop came the first time, and that's been over 20 years ago, uh, he came and preached for us and and... I, uh, I offered to put him in a room, and he declined the room. And uh, he knew we were small and poor church. And, 
And uh, once we even converted uh, that back Sunday school classroom back there at the end of the fellowship hall, we converted it, moved everything out, desks and chairs out, put a, set up a bed in there and a, and a desk and stuff. And we, we made a prophet's chamber temporarily for him for the week that he was with us. And he stayed there all week. And uh, when he came back, we, we have him every other year. And so when he came back the next time, he, he said, Preacher, uh, he said, I, I know you. You're small and can't afford a hotel room. And he said, to be honest with you, I don't like hotels anyway. He said, could I just stay with y'all? And so uh, we, we brought him back into our house and gave him a bedroom. And, and he, he's every year since then, every time we've had him, uh, always ask him, you want to go, want to get a, you a motel room, a hotel? No, no. He said, preacher, I, I really enjoy that family atmosphere at your house. And he said, I just want to, I just want to stay with you if it's okay. And, of course, uh, saves church money, and so uh, we always say, yeah, come and stay with us. And, and uh, he stayed every time since then. He just never wants a hotel room. He wants to stay with us. We give him his own room at the other end of the house, and so he, he can uh, read and pray and study and, and, and take naps uh, you know, <laughs> and things like that. And so he enjoys staying just because he, he said, I'd just rather stay with a family. He said, I stay in hotels a lot of times across the country, and he said, just to be honest with you, I just don't like to be isolated off in a hotel room. I'd rather, I'd rather spend time with your family. And so we did that. And uh, he'll probably want to do that again this year. When Jim Brown, the evangelist, came the first time uh, to stay overnight, uh, he, he wanted a hotel room. And so we got him a hotel room. And while he was here, we, uh, we had him and his wife over to our house. And, and Aaron cooked steaks for them and and he uh, he had that steak and he saw that our house was not a roach den and so he uh, he said you know he said I think next time I just want to stay with you guys and so after that time he always wanted to stay at our at our home I think it's because he knew Aaron could cook good steaks and <laughs> and he'd get a better meal I think that's why Brother Dunlop likes staying with us he can he likes to eat six meals a day and he won't get that many at the hotel and <laughs> he he eats more than Brother Paul and Zach. You know, if you can imagine that. <clears throat> He's, that guy eats, man. Uh, J.D. Weedo, who uh, is with us every other year in a revival meeting, uh, he, he stayed with us. He had the same option. He could have had a hotel room, but he said, I'd rather just stay with you, preacher. And he said, I enjoy being with your family. He said, I just like family atmosphere. And so he's, he always wants to stay with us. And we gave other preachers and missionaries that, that same option, you know, if they, if they want to stay in a hotel, we'll put them there. But if they want to stay with us, we're glad to have them. And, and uh, we get to fellowship with them more that way and have meals together. And they just enjoy that family atmosphere a lot of times. And family life is ordained by God. And church family life is ordained by God. And our family home and our church home, both ought to be somewhat like a little piece of heaven on earth. And I want to talk about family tonight and I want to talk about being comfortable in the family of God. Being comfortable in the family of God. Let's do a little exposition. Let's look back at our text in Psalm 133 and let's just look at a few words there that I think will will make this a little richer to us as we look at them. Notice in the first place, as we start off, the psalmist says, Behold, 
Behold, behold. In other words, look, give attention to this. What follows is important. Behold, and uh, watch this. And then they use the word good. <clears throat> good here refers to something that God is pleased about and that you and I should be too. And then he says, it's pleasant. The word pleasant means pleasing to the soul, delightful and sweet. And as we, we're thinking about family, thinking about our home family, our physical family, and we're thinking about our spiritual family, we're thinking about church family, these words mean so much more when we think about it in that context. And then he uses the word brethren. That gives the sense of a family. Brethren. Now, in, in uh, the time of this writing, Israel was the family, the, all the children of Israel. And so it's a big family, but it's a family. It's a spiritual family and a, and a physical family. They're kindred. And then the word unity. Uh, unity there, look at it again. Unity mentioned in these verses is compared to something else. And the word like, see that word like after that? Unity uh, is like something. There's a comparison made here. What is unity like? Well, it's, it's like precious Notice that word precious. Precious. Unity is precious. That means glad, kind, merry, and at ease. Don't you feel at ease in your home? And shouldn't we feel at ease in our church? At ease. Precious. And then he likes a precious ointment. Ointment refers to the, the perfumed oil or a thin cream that was used to anoint the priest, Aaron. And, uh, and it says that, that that would drip down and run over his beard and cover the front of his uh, breastplate where the, uh, where the Urim and the Thummim was. And that was the whole family of God. It was sweet unity, a sweet ointment. And then the, the last phrase I'll have you to notice is the dew of Hermon. The unity is likened unto a second thing, not just a precious ointment, but it's also uh, unity is like the dew of Hermon. The dew of Hermon, a mountain there in Israel, it was one of the few that, that is snow-capped from time to time. And the dew of Hermon is reminiscent of refreshing. You ever, you ever, be, in, ever be in the mountains in the cool air, especially out west if you're in the Rockies, the cool air... Boy, it's just refreshing. And here he says the dew of Hermon is, is it's like refreshing. It's cool. It's restorative. Man, it just kind of reinvigorate, reinvigorates you. All those words have significance when we're talking about the family of God and uh, your home family, your physical family. Those things ought to be very important to us. Warren Wiersbe says, When the high priest was anointed, the oil ran down his beard to the front of his body and over his collar. This suggests... Oil bathed the 12 precious stones that he wore on his breastplate over his heart. And this bathing is a picture of spiritual unity. When God's people walk in the Spirit, they forget about externals and major on the eternal things of the Spirit. Externals divide us, gender, wealth, appearance, ethnic prejudices, social or political standing, while the Spirit brings us together and we glorify Christ. All of those words express meaning into the wonderful relationship of family. God's people presently in our time the people of God are the New Testament church. He has 
temporarily switched over his attention from the people of God of the Old Testament because they rejected Jesus. Now he switched over and uh, the people of God right now are you and me in the church. And in the context of Psalm 133, it shows the, the blessed unity of the family of God. And God's people now are the church. So we have a family atmosphere. Israel had a family atmosphere because they were all descendants of, of Jacob, Israel. And so they had a family atmosphere as a, as a theocratic nation who worshiped God and loved God. And now in this time, we're the New Testament church, the people of God, and we worship Him through Jesus Christ. The church is a type of family, not totally unlike your home family. The church, we're related through the blood of Christ. And at home, you're related through the bloodline of your family. Your family at home is a physical family. The family at church is, may include some physical relations, but it's mostly a spiritual family. It's a family life. Family life is by God's design. In Luke chapter 10, verse number 38, I think one of the sweetest expressions of, of family life, a physical family, and also bringing in a spiritual one from the outside to enjoy that family is in Luke 10, 38, where Jesus goes to the home of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. And verse number 38, it says, Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Now there, we have a family living there in that house. Now Jesus is there, and so this makes a double relation. The family is related there. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are related by blood and spiritually. And Jesus comes in and there's a spiritual family and a physical family all combined there at the same place. And it says in verse 40, But Martha was cumbered about much serving. She and came to him and said, Lord, dost not thou care that my sister hath left me alone, or left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, I think this was very sweetly. I don't think he was railing on her. He was just telling her a truth. You know, sometimes people think, preachers railing on them because he preaches against sin or because he mentions something that they uh, ought to do that they're leaving out and they think the preacher's railing on them. No, it may be that he loves them enough to tell them. Jesus loved this Martha enough to tell her something. She's complaining about having to serve alone. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. So we see a family setting. Jesus comes into the home. Maybe, uh, maybe Martha's in there. Maybe she's making some biscuits and gravy and ham and eggs. I don't know whether it's breakfast or supper. 
and they wouldn't be eating ham or Jews. But uh, I'm, I'm just saying, they're probably gathered together there to have a nice family meal and Jesus in the midst. You know, when we have our family meals, isn't it wonderful that we invite Jesus in to be with us in our family meals? That's why we ask the Lord's blessing on our food, and that's why we talk about the Lord at the family table, because we're having family time, uh, that physical relation, but we want Jesus to be involved in that spiritual relation, family life. Family life in the home family has kind of deteriorated in the last 50 years. It's kind of gone downhill, not just kind of, but big time. When I was growing up in the 50s, uh, the American family was still largely intact. I mean, the, most of the, where I grew up in the country, uh, we, we got up and had breakfast together and sat at the table and, uh, and talked to each other before everybody started their day. The kids would go to school, dad would go to work, mom's working there at the house. And, and so we'd have a meal together. And it was, a, it was a nice, wonderful family atmosphere. And then everybody went about their day, maybe, uh, maybe 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock. Everybody was gathering back into the home by that time. Dad's home from work and kids are home from school. Mom's got fried chicken and mashed potatoes and gravy going. Don't you just love for me to talk about that? kind of food when you're hungry. How many of you have not had supper yet? Yeah, yeah God bless you. Uh, just, just pretend you're eating that fried chicken right now. Isn't that a wonderful thought of being in, a, in that fragrant aroma of home-cooked meal and the family's gathering together and everybody's talking about what they did that day and, and uh, everybody just feels secure. Everything feels safe. Everything feels friendly. Isn't that the way our homes ought to be? Your home's that way. It ought to be. And so we ought to make our homes just a little bit of heaven on earth. Now, I know that a lot of people say, well, that was the Leave it to Beaver days back in the 50s, and, and they mock us many times as independent Baptists because we, we kind of tend to still have the same family model as they had back in the 50s. And today, uh, lots of organizations today have it a goal to destroy the nuclear family. They don't like it when dad goes to work and mom stays home. They don't like it when the kids come back instead of going out and playing with the friends or, or looking on their phone. They don't like it if they gather around the, the family table for a meal together and they have respect one for the other and they enjoy a home-cooked meal and they still love each other. Uh, they, they have made it their express purpose. Many organizations today, Black Lives Matter had it right on their website that they, one of their purposes was to destroy the nuclear family. They don't like it when there's a mom and a dad and kids in the same home and dad is the uh, head of the family and, and mom is, is showing those kids how to be godly kids and have some manners. They don't like it like that. They don't like it that the kids show respect to their, <coughs> to their parents. They don't like it. And so they're working against it. Well, I think that kind of family life is not just leave it to Beaver Day's life. I think they had that back in the Bible times. People gathered around. Dad worked out in the field all day. And, and maybe Mom did part of the time too, but she was home uh, taking care of the little kids a lot of times and cooking. And, uh, and so the career women don't like it that you have babies and that you take care of them instead of sending them off to daycare or, or even in their way of thinking, maybe you would have been better off to have an abortion. They want you to be a career person. In our neck of the woods where I grew up, it was, it was often that you'd see and hear 
other kids talking about how they'd gather around and read storybooks at night. And didn't have uh, most folks didn't have a TV back then. There was a few, but instead of watching, I mean, Dad would watch the news. And maybe on Saturday he'd watch a major league ball game, but most of the time we were doing other stuff, and we'd we'd read storybooks and and actually talk, or maybe play some games at the table and stuff. And it was that way in our in our community. And uh, most families went to church together on Sunday. And a lot of times it, it might not be that dad was saved. It might not be that mom was saved. Uh, but they still had enough respect for the house of God and the things of God that they went. And they thought it was a decent and good thing to do because they wanted their kids to grow up right. And then thank goodness sooner or later a lot of them, uh, a lot of those parents would get saved and things would change for them. It was very unusual to hear of a divorce in our community. It, I mean, it just didn't happen much. And if one happened, boy, it was, it was odd that anything like that would happen because families stayed together and they loved each other. <laughs> and then single mothers were almost non-existent. Existent. And I'm, I'm not railing on single motherhood. Because sometimes uh, dad would die, even in our neighborhood. Maybe a, di- a dad would die early in life. He'd, have some illness, disease, or maybe a heart attack and die early and leave mom uh, with those kids all alone. And oftentimes you'd see some other man in the community that wasn't married and he felt like he, he liked the woman, obviously, or wouldn't marry her, but he felt like it was his duty. That widow needed somebody to take care of and a lot of times a man in the community would marry that widow and raise up those kids. Ira Harville lived next door to us. And I say next door, I mean as far as from here to that church across the street when I say next door because things weren't very close up there. You had to walk out a lane nearly a quarter of a mile to get there. But Ira, he married an anime because her husband got killed at a young age. They had, uh, let's see, Karen and Catherine and Ann and Dale. They, she had four kids. Ira was an honorable man and he had never been married. He just stepped up to the plate and married her with four kids. Can you imagine somebody with that much nerve, <laughs> that much ambition to marry a woman with four kids already? But he raised those kids up just like they were his own, and he treated them like they were his own. They had a different last name, but he treated them good. He provided for them. They knew there would be food on the table. And they knew that he would protect them and he'd send them to school and they'd get the clothes they needed because that's just the way things were. Today is a lot different. Now, let's begin a transition from this physical family, the home family. Let's begin a gradual transition over to the spiritual family. A seminary professor was vacationing years ago in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And one morning he and his wife were eating in a little local restaurant. And uh, there were several people in there. And there was one man that looked kind of stately, dressed nicely. And, and uh, as they're eating, they just want to be nondescript. They don't want anybody fooling around with them. And they see this one man dressed nicely and he's going from table to table visiting with the people at the table. And the professor said to his wife, he said, I hope that man doesn't come over here. I just want to eat breakfast and be left alone. Well, it wasn't but a few minutes till that man made his way from the last table over to the professor's table to visit with him and his wife. 
And he said, uh, the, he said to the professor, where, where are you folks from? He said, well, we're from Oklahoma. He said, what do you do for a living? And the uh, professor said, well, I, I teach in a seminary. And uh, the, uh, the nicely dressed man said, oh, so you teach preachers about preaching? He said, well, yeah, sort of. And he's hoping the man would go away. But the man said, you know what? I've got a great story I want to tell you about things like that. And the professor thought in his heart, oh, no, just what I need is another preacher's story. Well, the nicely dressed man grabbed a chair and pulled it up and just sat down with them and began to talk to them. He said, let me tell you a story. He said, uh, you see that mountain over there? And there was plate glass windows across the side of the restaurant. He said, see that mountain over there? The professor said, yeah, I see it. He said, not far from the base of that mountain was a, was a boy that was born to an unwed mother. And he said, uh, he had a hard time growing up because everywhere he went, everywhere he went around here, somebody would uh, somebody would say, hey boy, who, who's your daddy? And he said it was embarrassing as all get out because the boy didn't have a daddy. And he said it, the boy would go to school and somebody at school would say, uh, uh, who's your daddy? And so he'd hide out, shy. He'd find a place to hide out during lunch or recess where people wouldn't be asking him. And he said it was always that same question. He'd stay out of stores. He wouldn't go in a store or any place public because he's afraid somebody's just going to embarrass him again by asking him who his dad was. And so when he was about 12 years old, a new preacher came to the boys' church. And the boy would usually slip out just at the, at the prayer time. At the end of the service, he'd slip out before anybody had a chance to talk to him so he wouldn't have to answer the question, who's, who's your daddy? And so this one Sunday with this new preacher there, the, the boy was a little too slow, and the amen came too soon, and he had to walk out with the rest of the crowd. And on his way out, the new preacher asked the boy, well, son, who, who's your daddy? And the boy kind of flinched and hung his head a little bit, and everybody surrounding them, was they knew this was an awkward situation. Silence. Nobody saying a word. And the preacher suddenly realized what he had gotten into. And the preacher put his hand over on the boy's shoulder and he said, never mind, I know who your daddy is. You, you belong to God. You're a child of God. And the boy straightened up and smiled and he said he went out from there, changed from that day forward. He never had to answer the question again, who's your daddy without having an answer? He'd always answer, well, I'm a child of God. Well, the, uh, the professor and his wife still eating breakfast and the, the nicely dressed man got up and started to leave and he, uh, he said, isn't that a great story? And the professor said, yeah, yeah, it is. That's a pretty good story. And so the nicely dressed man took about two or three more steps, and he turned around and said to the professor, he said, you know, if that preacher hadn't have said that to me that day, I wouldn't have ever amounted to nothing. And he walked on out. And then 
the professor called the waitress over. He said, do you know who that man was that was talking to us at our table? She grinned real big and said, well, of course, everybody knows who he is. That's Ben Hooper. He's the former governor of Tennessee. Somebody in your life today needs you to just let them know that God can be their daddy. The physical home is broken to a large extent today, and the church home is broken to a large extent. Widowers in church families need some attention. Widows need some attention. Mrs. Sutton, they're in the hospital. Mary Hopkins <clears throat> with, a, with an amputated foot and all kinds of health problems, going back and forth to doctors, operations. Brother Aubrey recovering from that knee surgery. Wouldn't it be good if somebody just went by and let them know that the family of God cares about them and that they belong even though if they can't show up every Sunday. I think when people are healthy, I think they ought to be in the house of God. I really do. But sometimes they're not able, physically not able. And they need to know they're still loved. Sometimes a widower can come in, maybe listening to the congregationals and hearing the voice of ladies, probably provides some comfort to him. Widows come in and seeing some male leadership at work, maybe that brings them a little comfort knowing the times that their husband was there to provide and protect them. Liberty Baptist Church should be that kind of place where people can belong. I'm not saying that lost people come in and we tell them that they're a child of God and take them into the membership, but everybody that walks through those doors ought to know they're welcome. And they ought to know that this is a place where they can belong on Sunday, even though they're not a member. They can sit and they can enjoy the fellowship. And just maybe, just maybe one of these days, by setting in a group who has accepted them and loved them and showed care and concern for them, just maybe one of these days they'll trust Jesus Christ as their Savior and they'll actually come into the family of God and become a member of the church and be part of the spiritual family and the local church family and maybe we could even, not that we want to replace anybody's physical family, but maybe we can help strengthen those who don't have that kind of family at home. That's our purpose. Good home life or not, everybody needs a church home. Everybody needs an eternal home. Everybody needs a church home. And everybody needs a family home. And we ought to be able to provide all three of those to some extent. I believe this church is a refreshing, merry, restorative place as we read about in Psalm 133. I think it's the kind of place that it can strengthen those who need some help and support. There's people who need to be saved and we need to make them feel welcome when they come in here's the way we receive members sometimes people online or maybe even people in our midst don't know and maybe I don't mention it often enough uh, during invitation time how we receive members number one they have, have to be saved to be a member of, the, of this church and have to be baptized and those are things that we can take care of um we take 
people into the membership if they're saved and baptized in a service. We take people who are saved somewhere else and they still need to be baptized. We can baptize them and bring them into the membership. Uh, they can transfer. If they've already been saved and baptized scripturally in another church of like faith, they can come in on promise of a letter of transfer from another church and we can receive them that way. Maybe they're, maybe they're a member of an old church that went defunct. Maybe the church burned down and all the records went away and, and they give a testimony of faith that they have trusted Christ as Savior and were scripturally baptized. We can even receive them by statement of faith. And now I know that some of my Baptist brethren think that might be a little risky because after all, you can't, you can't prove that they really got saved and they really got baptized. I just wonder how many we can prove got saved and baptized, even if they got saved and baptized right here. I have no idea. All I can do, if somebody comes to this altar and prays and says, praise the Lord, preacher, I got saved today. All I've got is their testimony. I don't know what happened in their heart. <laughs> Same way with the Lord's Supper table. So, well, if you let people from outside the membership take the Lord's Supper with you, even if they're saved and baptized and they're not a member of this church, you don't know. You don't know if they're really saved. I don't know if they're really saved or not. You don't know if I'm really saved. I don't know if you're really saved. If we take people's testimony, I mean, that's all we've got. Only God can see the heart. Isn't that true? We just need to love people. And we need people to feel like, hey, this can be my family. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd bless us tonight. Help us to be, have a welcoming family spirit for all those who come through our doors. Lord, we want this to be the kind of place where they'll feel comfortable among the family of God. And if they're not saved, they'll trust Christ as Savior and that they'll follow you for the rest of our life because we showed some grace and some mercy and some concern and some love, some compassion. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be that kind of a place. And I believe we are, Lord. I believe we are. I believe we have that kind of a unity here where we love you and we love each other. I pray that you'd bless the invitation time.